History and Philosophy podcast. I'm Dr. Roush, the host of today's episode, and with me today is Dr. Jackson. Dr. Jackson, welcome to the show. Hey, Dr. Roush, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, and yourself? I'm doing great. All right. Um, uh, go yeah. on. Good day. <laughs> yeah, you're saying that you're, today's the start of the NFL season? Yeah, yeah, so I... Uh, I, I have a few more hours before my my whole psychological well being just goes down the tubes. <laughs> oh, very good. Well, I hope. <laughs> well, thank you. Is there a certain team you're rooting for? Uh, I'm a Cowboys fan, and, oh, and it's excellent. Been, it's been 30 years of of just just a mess. Oh, no. just a, a lot of a few ups and a lot of mediocrity, and oh, no. I am I am expecting more mediocrity this year. <laughs> oh goodness, I, I'm a, a fan of. Uh, uh, I'm from Indiana, so of course I'm a Colts fan. Oh, okay. No, I don't. I don't follow like I should. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, starting to think maybe I shouldn't follow it like I, like I do. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe being historians, there's a bit of masochism among us. I don't, I don't know. I, I, maybe this is, maybe this is it. Uh, maybe this is it. I don't know. <laughs> oh, very good. Well, so to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I'm the. I'm an assistant professor of history at Newberry College, uh, which is a small Lutheran liberal arts uh, institution in Newberry, South Carolina. It's about an hour and a half from Columbia. Um, well, maybe about an hour from Columbia. It's about, about right, because I drive that about, about every day. Well, yeah, so about 30 minutes. Let's just call it 30 minutes, because I drive from Blythewood, so it takes me about an hour to get there. Uh, and I currently teach uh, introductory level courses in US history. Uh, as well as uh, some special topics courses. Uh, this semester, I'm teaching a course on African American civil rights, and I'm also teaching a course on student movements in the 20th century. Um, I've done a lot of public history work uh, across the state of South Carolina, uh, especially during my graduate school years. Um, I was fortunate to have some great mentors uh, and a lot of support from, uh, you know, uh, specific scholars and then also institutions. I uh, want to give a shout out to the newly named Department of African American Studies at the University of South Carolina, um, one of the first in the South, and I'm I'm so happy I received that news yesterday. Uh, and I know uh, that program's founders are dancing on the clouds today, man. It's it's a it's a good day, really good day. Well, that's very exciting. Could could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, my understanding is that uh, they were finally granted departmental status a few days ago. Uh, and so the announcement went out. Uh, I saw it over Facebook and then I saw it on Twitter. Uh, but it's kind of the culmination of almost uh, 52, 53 years of, of wow. hard work uh, and dedication on the part of uh, scholars in that program to finally reach departmental status. Uh, and uh, I wrote a chapter in a recently published volume on the University of South Carolina, the history of black uh, students and faculty and administrators there called uh, Invisible No More. It's by... <laughs> It was edited by Dr. Robert Green uh, and also uh, Dr. Tyler Perry, and I did a chapter on the origins of that program uh, and, and tried to give folks a sense of its relationship to the Black campus movement, uh, which sprang up nationwide. And so, you know, giving some attention to the role of Black students in the formation of, you know, Black studies at USC. Uh, and, you know, for the first 30 some odd years of that program's history, the university really uh, gave it short shrift in terms of funding and, and providing lines for faculty and making sure that they had what they needed to to kind of sustain themselves. Um, it was really kind of the the dogged determination and, and love of 
a handful of scholars that enabled that program to survive into the 90s uh, when another wave of scholars such as uh, Dr. Belinda Littlefield and Dr. Bobby Donaldson, among others, uh, kind of took the took the baton and, and began kind of growing that program. Uh, and so, you know, few few days ago, I understand that they were named uh, renamed the Department of African American Studies. And uh, you have to understand there is not a lot of those in the in the Deep South. Right. Uh, and so, for them to achieve that milestone is is a huge credit to everybody uh, that's been a part of that program and now now department. And so, when I heard the news today, nothing could go wrong today. That was just Fantastic to hear that news. Oh, excellent. And a lot of our listeners are going to be students. They may not be so familiar with some of the bureaucratic aspects of institutional life. Why is is that so important to be a department? Well, my understanding is that, you know, to to be a department means that you have um, a kind of slightly larger budget for new faculty lines, for increased programming, extracurricular opportunities for students. Um, and then there's also just a kind of uh, certain amount of respect that comes with being a department versus a program, right? Um, so the degrees are valued in a very in a different way than having, say, a certificate or a specialization in a discipline versus having an actual degree from a department. Um, so I, it, it's a, there's a little bit of kind of concrete value, but but I think also there's just a level of respect um, and and kind of you know, gravitas that comes right, with right. as well. Yes. So, um, you know, to, to be able to say that you're one of a handful of departments of African-American studies in the Deep South, I think just brings added value uh, to that degree um, and, and may provide some reassurance to parents uh, mm, and others who might not necessarily think that there's value uh, in African-American studies. So, you know, I'm just thrilled that, you know, they, they finally achieved that milestone. Um, now, what those steps were, that might be some something you may have to uh, ask from from a few others closer to the to the program or the department. But you know, I was there during the tail end of kind of this push, and you know, I'm I'm glad to say that you know our our kind of demand, so to speak, for for that to be kind of front and center on the part of arts and sciences, uh, we're we're kind of realized. So that's that's good to hear. Uh, really happy to hear that. No, that that's great, and that that's a nice segue, um, because like you said, that's that's where you received your PhD from. Uh, well, I got my PhD from the Department of History. Oh, okay, uh, at University of South Carolina. Right. But um, I, there's no way I would have achieved that without the kind of love and support from folks in the program, uh, the African American Studies program. Um, you know, they provided me with teaching opportunities when funds were a little bit low. Mm-hmm. They provided me with kind of you know, uh, work study program uh, opportunities over the summer. Uh, a lot of the public historical public history work that I've been fortunate to to uh, be a part of, uh, you know, was done kind of with that program rather than the Department of History. So, you know, I I have a special place in my heart uh, for that department uh, because I I don't think I'd be here without them. I I, I can definitely say that. Oh. Great. And and so how did that help prepare you to go in? How did your department and your PhD help prepare you to go into uh, public history and then academic history? Well, I mean, it really wasn't necessarily just the, the AFAM department. I mean, you know, uh, a lot of times, you know, for, for students from marginalized communities to get through PhD programs, it, it really does take a village, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it also takes, uh, you know, having a strong mentoring relationship with your advisor or advisors. And so, you know, I was always kind of blessed to have uh, the support of uh, two folks in particular, uh, Dr. Bobby Donaldson and Dr. Valinda Littlefield, who quite often made sure that I had these kind of opportunities for hands-on um, kind of scholarship and research in public history. Um, I, I think Dr. Donaldson in particular may have noticed that that was kind of where my heart was rather than the kind of academic track that, um, you know, many folks kind of sign up for these PhD programs to, to pursue. Uh, and so I was uh, really fortunate to be the co-historian uh, with Columbia SC63, uh, which is still ongoing. I was the first co-historian with Dr. Donaldson. He's continued that work on uh, since I left. Um, and so that was really uh, one of those kind of milestone projects uh, that that showed me that you know public history is really kind of where my heart is um, mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of working with communities to tell their story or, or, or you know, assisting them with research or, you know, finding ways to, to kind of share uh, histories that have been silenced or marginalized or kind of forgotten in some ways. You know, I think there's real value in that, especially in a place like South Carolina, where you know, history is kind of essential to the the kind of collective memory of these towns, right? Um, that and, and kind of the personality of these places. Um, and so, I think you know, working with him on that project um, was just you know probably my fondest memory of graduate school. Um, I, I can definitely say I enjoyed that work a lot more than I, I did uh, the the kind of days droning away on. Uh, <laughs> On, on those, um, what they call those comprehensive exams and, oh, right. and you know, all that. Yeah, I, I, I could do without that. Um, give, me, give me the public history stuff any day of the week. <laughs> and, and could you tell us a little bit more about that project? Uh, so Columbia SC63 was, uh, it, it was started as the kind of uh, 50th anniversary commemoration of what was seen as the the height of the civil rights movement, right? 1963. So this was back in 2013. I worked with them for a couple years, I think about 2013 to 2015. Uh, and so initially Columbia was asked to join the project by representatives from other uh, cities with a kind of deep civil rights lineage. So Birmingham, Jackson, Memphis, Atlanta, um, who else? Uh, I believe D.C. may have been a part of it. There were a number of other cities, but Columbia kind of was was asked uh, to join. And, and so when Dr. Donaldson and I uh, kind of began looking at you know what was possible, you know, one of the things we realized was just how much Columbia's civil rights legacy had been kind of forgotten. Right. Uh, and, and so we started digging and it was almost kind of, you know, it, Every few months, we'd have these moments where kind of it, it became clear that Columbia was was far more central to the movement and its success than had been previously realized, mm. right? Uh, so we had this one really cool moment where uh, the state newspaper reached out to us. Uh, and, and so he and I were the principal researchers on the project for about the first year. And so they reached out to us, and we met with the, the editor and, and some folks over there. And they started kind of asking about the project. And so we, we kind of told them what we were looking for. Uh, and they said, well, listen, we've got this whole morgue of photographs back here. We've not, we haven't cataloged them. We don't even, we don't know what they, what's in there. Maybe there's something important. 
Maybe not. So Dr. Donaldson and I spent about a week in there and we realized that we could have spent years. <laughs> um, and, and so, I mean, we found there was just a treasure trove of kind of photographs and images uh, that, that documented the kind of history of civil rights and, and the black freedom struggle in Colombia from about the mid 50s to roughly the late 70s, right? Um, and, and so they've, they're still kind of working together, I think. Uh, I haven't been as closely attached to this project uh, since, but you know, if you visit their website, uh, columbiasc63.com, you'll find many of these photographs that we found uh, in this morgue uh, that the state newspaper allowed us to use. Uh, and there are also photographs from other collections as well that we were able to gain access to as we kind of pursued that work. Uh, and, and, you know, I think it's really changed the, the national perspective on Colombia um, as a city with a, a really deep and important civil rights lineage, uh, particularly uh, in the kind of legal uh, side of civil rights activism. Um, you, you see a number of important uh, cases sprang up here in South Carolina that you know, had they, you know, gone unrecognized or, or, or had they not happened, may have changed the face of civil rights activism nationwide. So, you know, I, I was really just blown away by how much we were able to achieve. Uh, there's a fantastic uh, wayside uh, tour downtown along Main Street. Um, I was I was privileged to be able to kind of help Dr. Donaldson put that together. Um, had one of those kind of cool high school moments where you bring your mom and you walk her down Main Street and you go, yeah, mom, I helped make that and I made that <laughs> and I did that. And so and she was just like, oh, I'm so proud of you. You know, so it was, it was, I mean, you know, I still kind of, you know, have a lot of fond memories of that work and, and they've continued on. Um, they're still kind of doing the work. They've got public tours downtown now that kind of utilize those wayside signs and, and other markers. Um, there've been numerous uh, kind of commemorations of different moments in Colombia and civil rights, uh, I mean, and, and South Carolina civil rights movement. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it's not a stretch to say that without that project, a lot of this kind of boom or, or renaissance in kind of analysis of civil rights in the state uh, would not have happened. Uh, and so I think, you know, in a lot of ways we were on the cutting edge then, and, and now everybody's doing it. There's so many, you know, great programs uh, all over the place. Um, and, and I'm proud to say that I think, you know, that project was really kind of the start of, of this trend. Oh, that that's really cool. And I, yeah. I, I'm sure for our, our public history students there, they're, I'm sure they're 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 almost salivating at the idea <laughs> of hopefully being able to be a part of, uh, of something yeah. like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think for institutions our size, that's that's really where we can bring the most value to our surrounding communities, right? If, if we're able to kind of find stakeholders uh, in our small towns, wherever we happen to be, whether it's Lander or Newberry or Francis Marion, you name it, right? Um, I think being able to connect with those stakeholders and kind of figuring out ways that our students can be a part of this kind of work locally, I think that's a really great way to attract new students to our majors and then you know, for those that we have, it, it gives them uh, the kind of experience that I think they need when they hit the job market, right? Mm -hmm. To say that they've done projects like this already looks great. Uh, and, 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 you know, when you're kind of speaking to folks in interviews like this, it gives you something that you can share that, that kind of shows your expertise or at least shows ways 
uh, you know, shows you know where you are and how you can grow, right? Or or what you can contribute to the community that you're trying to be a part of. Um, and so, you know, Newberry is a teaching college, of course. Uh, but you know, one of the things I hope to do um, as we kind of move forward is really get our students in Phi Alpha Theta and and also non-majors involved in this kind of work at Newberry, um, because I think the college has a really fascinating connection to kind of the, the Confederacy and slavery during the Civil War. And then there's also a really important Reconstruction story that I'm not sure we've we've really kind of dug deep on. Um, so, you know, the University Studying Slavery Project, for example, would be perfect for Newberry. Um, and, and I'm not sure what Lander's history is, but I'm, I, I'm willing to bet you guys would have a history that fits somewhere in a project like this, or maybe a reconstruction narrative or something like that. So, you know, getting students involved in that kind of work, studying home, where you are, I think is a great way to show the relevance of what we do um, and, and gives them uh, a way to kind of sink their teeth in, in, and maybe uh, d discover that history might actually be for them, right? Because right. Um, that's, I think, something a lot of students struggle with. Uh, in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I, I have mm -hmm. to point, so uh, we're getting ready to celebrate our 150th anniversary. So we're a reconstruction era. So it's 1872. Okay. okay. Uh, though at that time it was founded, uh, it, it was not in, in Greenwood. It would move to Greenwood in, I think it's 1903 or 1904. Okay, where was uh, it before? Uh, Williamston. Where is that? <laughs> yeah, I that might be the I'm, one South Carolina city I've I'm, never I'm been to. I'm embarrassed, I don't remember. <laughs> Offhand, well, I think it, Goodness, I'm going to have to just be embarrassed for a moment and just say I forgot. I almost wasn't it in North Carolina. I you I'm, got I'm going to Williamston. You don't mind? Yeah. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna we'll, hit old Google. We'll have a race. Oh, Anderson County. Okay. 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 You're Anderson faster than me. Huh? Now, see, that's interesting. And I, I'd be curious to know what the story is behind that move and and how now where are you guys located now? Greenwood. Oh wow. Wait so a it, minute. They were willing to give a lot of money to get the school to move, basically. They they said we want a university in our, our town. We want to be able to um to have that. We're growing with the the mills and so forth. We if we want to continue to grow, this is what we need. And so they said, well, like, we'll give you a bunch of land, we'll build you some nice buildings, we're gonna do a lot of stuff if you if you move. And um, so it's it's curious because, of course, we're named Lander after Samuel Lander, the founder. Um, he unfortunately died like right after they moved. OK, so his presence was not um, was not physically was not felt as much. Um, though, of course, his descendants continue to play a very important role in the life. Of yeah, the see, I, when I think of. Kind of. Green, when I think of Greenwood, I, I kind of think of immediately think of Benjamin E. Mays. Of course. Oh, and. Yeah. And you know his the story of he and his father when he's right. four years old, uh, kind of being held up at gunpoint by participants in the uh, Phoenix riots. Right. And so I'm I, I'm wondering what the response of Lander was to those kind of racial skirmishes that took place in the 1890s. Like, was there any kind of public outcry or? Well, it wouldn't have been in in, in Greenwood County yet. Okay, it wouldn't so have, in, in the 1890s. It wouldn't. Have, oh, so it was a few right, years before that. Okay, cool. Um, um, 
Hmm. Today, what I mean, there, there is because we're only like his house was moved to like within just a couple miles of the school. So right. we routinely take, um, you know, I have field trips out there with my students, other professors do. And recently a Dr. Benjamin, uh, well, Dr. Witherspoon holds the the seat. The Dr. Benjamin Mays chair was established. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. So we're, and he did receive an honorary degree uh, from the university, uh, which was okay. nice. Um, but yeah, so I, uh, the, the university was not here at the time, but it would have been interesting what, what would have, yeah, it's, it's a very good question. Uh, but um, yeah, you were. But I mean, but that that kind of you know ties into you know what we've been discussing for the last couple of minutes, right? I mean, all of these kind of all of these small kind of rural towns in South Carolina have fascinating stories, mm -hmm. um, and you know, getting your students to dig into that a bit more, um, you know, I think is just a great way to connect them to to what we do. Um, so you know, I I had a really interesting class couple weeks ago, we have a statue on our campus of Reverend John Bachman, mm -hmm. uh, who was the uh, first president, one of the founders of our college. And what was interesting about this, what's interesting about this statue is it's, it's kind of right there in the heart of campus. It has his date of birth, his, his death date. Uh, and then it has, um, kind of, it makes references to his, his status as a naturalist, an educator, and a Lutheran minister. And then at the bottom, it says, um, nature, truth, and no humbug. And so that's in quote. So I, either he said this quote at some point, we don't know for sure, right. or this may have been an alumni playing kind of flat, fast and loose with the quote, right? And so what I thought was interesting about the statue was that, you know, one, it's, it's erected in 2015 during the kind of heat of this debate over whether Newberry should have changed its uh, mascot from... Uh, the wolf, I mean, from the Indian to the wolf, right? Uh, so there's this kind of racial debate that's ongoing on our campus uh, over kind of, you know, the meaning of Indian and and kind of you know, whether or not we're being pol too politically correct in making this change. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting about that statue is, you know, it honors Reverend Bachman, who was a slaveholder. Uh, he owned four slaves in 1860. Uh, and then we have a whole board of trustees uh, that helped establish the, co uh, the college with him, that between them, with Reverend Bachman included, owned 452 slaves in Ooh. 1860. So I started having this conversation with the students. We had read um, a chapter from uh, Dr. Karen Cox's book, No Common Ground, uh, where she talks about the, the purpose of Confederate statues. And I looked at this statue and, I, and, and you know, we, we started asking ourselves, okay, well, what is this? Mm -hmm. Right. Is it simply a statue commemorating the founder of the college or does it have some kind of political meaning? Uh, is it a Confederate monument? And so this really sparked some fascinating debate amongst the students. You know, some of them were kind of saying, well, wait a minute. Maybe it is uh, because of you know, this, his historical context that we, we had kind of uncovered about him and, and his, his peers. Um, you know, we weren't, we didn't come to a consensus, but, you know, being able to use sites like that on our campus has been a really interesting tool to kind of spark conversation and, and get students kind of thinking about things um, in a different way. So, you know, I don't know what you guys may have at Lander, but, but if there's monuments like that with, with this kind of history that you can kind of share with the 
with students and the public and, and get folks to start really thinking about their larger meaning, I think that's a really great way to kind of give people a sense of, of what we do, right? And, right? and the relevance and the utility of what we do. Um, I'm not an advocate for removing that statue by any means. I think it's a great educational site mm-hmm. on our campus because, you know, you can we have seating there. It's, it's in a really nice courtyard. Uh, I just think, you know, a lot of, as a lot of the students stated, you know, there might need to be a bit more context there. Right. Um, you know, because when you start digging, it looks a little odd. Um, so, you know, just kind of one of those things that that we've been kind of sinking our teeth into. Uh, we haven't really gotten into a lot of this work yet, but, you know, having these kinds of public sites of commemoration, I think, is a great way, a great segue into that work. Right. Mm-hmm. And in terms of preparing for the work, right? So you you got your uh, PhD and then you, is it, did you finish that first or did you immediately, before while still do, being ABD, did you start working for the South Carolina African-American Heritage Commission okay. and the State Historic <laughs> Preservation Office or, or how did that, it's, that all work? It, it's been a long and winding road, man. Like, I, <laughs> you know, I did not have the prettiest uh, route to get to this point. And, and I'm not even going to sit here and tell you that this was the destination. Like, for any students out there that are listening, please understand that if, if your road is not paved with gold, um, it's okay. You know, if, if the bridges are, are, are you know, have or if you're crossing rope bridges, hey, at least you're getting across the water, bro. Um, so, you know, I, I can't sit here and tell you that, you know, this was the easiest trek. Um, you know, when I finished graduate school, I, I actually left for a couple years. So this is the other thing. Um, now, my advisor may disagree, but I actually left for, for a couple years after I finished working with Columbia SC63. I, I just went and worked a regular job. I went and, you know, sold paint at Lowe's for two years um, and, and t- sold cars at CarMax and did all kinds of little random things. And so one day while I was selling paint at Lowe's, I got a phone call from my advisor who wanted to know where the first draft of his dissertation was. <laughs> and so I kind of said, well, I guess I should finish that, huh? <laughs> and so I went back <laughs> and there was this whole kind of thing about, you know, showing back up after you had basically left. Uh, but, you know, we got through, but I, I finished my dissertation at the same time I was employed at Archives and History. So, okay. you know, I managed to get the, the position at Archives and History finished my dissertation that that last year, uh, well, that last semester, and then went ahead and, and worked there for about a year before I landed at Newberry. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't the prettiest route. Um, you know, there were times where I didn't necessarily think that I would finish, um, but we made it. Um, and, and, you know, I don't have many regrets, no. Um, but, you know, that's kind of the, the, the long version of, of how we got there. <laughs> Right, right. Well, and for students yeah. listening, I mean, that's, I think it's more normal to have detours. It's, um, it's very strange not to have something come up. I, you know, it's funny. I always felt like an odd duck in that regard with, with my uh, cohort. Like, I mean, I've got uh, some of the folks that I went to grad school with at Carolina. I mean, it's almost like they, you blink and they were gone. So like, right. I, I, there's one of my colleagues, uh, Michael Woods was just, I mean, it, it, this thing was like water off a of duck's back for him. I mean, he comes in, his dissertation is done, I think maybe five years later, and he's gone. You know, wow. like he went off to Marshall. He does phenomenal work in um, uh, the history of emotions and, okay. and the Civil War. Uh, and then wow. uh, there's some other 
really good colleagues, uh, Tiffany Florville at, at New Mexico, uh, got in and out pretty quickly. So I always felt kind of weird, you know, kind of just being in limbo after all of the coursework. Um, but we survived. We made it. Um, <laughs> and and I'm pleased to say that I actually managed to get a tenure track job out of this, too. So <laughs> it's right, possible. Yeah. <laughs> it is possible. Well, all that, that ex- I think that experience helps. Maybe. Maybe. Um, I think. I, I think one of the things that uh, maybe attracted uh, me to Newberry and vice versa was that public history experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the individuals who interviewed me was a former uh, uh, employee at Archives and History and had and was familiar with some of the work that we had done with Columbia 63. So maybe that did help. Um, you know, everyone's road is different. Uh, right. But, you know, I'm glad to, I'm glad that we're still we're still in motion. Yeah. <laughs> So when you were serving in a public history position, like what would a, a typical day work uh, day look like? Um, I mean, there was no typical day at <laughs> South Carolina Archives and History because I had this I had this really unique position where I was the kind of liaison between the archives and uh, the South Carolina African American Heritage Commission, which was a uh, it's a kind of uh, volunteer based organization that deals with uh, African American history and heritage across South Carolina. Um, and so, you know, my day-to-day activities would vary uh, depending on the needs of the chairperson and, and members of various committees with that group. Uh, so I, you know, I could have a day where I'm basically in archives, working alongside folks in the state uh, historic preservation office, uh, helping them to catalog different, uh, you know, historic sites around Columbia or across the state. Um, and then, you know, there might be a week where I'm spending a lot of my time with the chairperson of the commission doing public history projects or, or helping them with research or simply just kind of, you know, doing whatever is needed to help them uh, advance. So, you know, it there were a lot of different, I wore a lot of different hats. Um, I think the, the value of that position was uh, that, you know, because of the way it was set up, I was able to meet lots of folks I was able to kind of connect with communities in a way that I might not have been able to, you know, solely as a grad student, right? So, you know, I was able to visit with folks in Clarendon County and help them think about how they were uh, planning to commemorate Rigsby Elliott and, and, and help them to kind of, uh, you know, figure out ways that they might promote uh, that work. And then I was able to go to, you know, a place like uh, Chira uh, and work on a project related to the Green Book. And we were able to kind of speak with current owners of buildings that were once listed in that guide, right? And so they're in a different stage of publicly commemorating uh, their history than a than a place that you know is a little bit further along, like Clarendon or maybe Charleston or Columbia. So you know it was really cool to just kind of connect with folks um, and and just kind of help wherever I could. Uh, I, I think the that was a real value of that position was just uh, getting a lay of the state. And, and, and becoming kind of familiar with his history in a way that uh, maybe I wasn't necessarily able to, you know, in grad school or with the 63 project, because we we worked with a lot of different places, some of which were much smaller and, and, mm-hmm. and would often go underlooked uh, or overlooked in, in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it's neat. So you got kind of through the 63 project, you got like kind of the the micro view where you're looking very closely at a few sites and here you're getting this macro view of how they all integrate. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that's, that's definitely the case. Um, 
you know, because you, you'd have moments where you realize that, you know, the state is much smaller than the narrative may show, right? Uh, so, you know, some of the same activists that you're, you're that you might have looked at with Columbia SC 63, you know, who maybe started the sit in movement uh, in March of 1960, they're related, uh, you know, to folks who might be working in Greenville. Right. Or, or might have attended even North Carolina A&T. So like there are these really interesting family relationships that we don't quite grasp as historians. Uh, and so oftentimes you'll meet someone and they'll say, oh, well, that's my cousin and they yeah. live up the road there. And so you're able to kind of make these connections, you know, in, in a different way. Right. Um, I guess, you know, one example might be, uh, you know, I, I was really kind of fortunate to connect with um, Harry Walker. He was the first uh, African-American student body president at the University of South Carolina. And so we, we ha- did a couple of interviews. I met his family. We were, we were uh, you know, I was really fortunate to work with him. And then I, I did this project uh, with the archives that took me to Greenville and I run into his high school teacher. <laughs> and so there's this kind of interesting dialogue, you know, between kind of what we were doing there and then I'm able to kind of connect him to that history as well, because he comes out of, you know, the segregated communities in Greenville. Um, and so, you know, realizing just how small the state is, I think, is important for anybody that's going to study here. Um, it also helps you avoid, uh, you know, talking too much. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, be, be careful who you mention, because that could be someone's cousin. Right. Uh, <laughs> No, I, I had that happen the other day where a student, uh, there was someone standing behind me in a um, at Publix and they only had one item and I had a big, big cart. And I, I looked at him, I said, oh, yeah, you, you go ahead. And they looked at me and they said, are you Dr. Roush? <laughs> it's one of my former students, but they had, they had like, they'd grown a beard and uh, they were <laughs> dressed very differently. So I just didn't recognize them. And it was just so funny. <laughs> it was like, well, I'm, I'm glad I left them ahead of me. Yeah, I, I mean, you'd be surprised. Um... You know, my wife's family is from Monk's Corner, and uh, one of the they they uh, attend a very small AME church in Monk's mm-hmm. Corner, and so one of the families that is kind of affiliated with their church, you know, was was uh, one of their kind of elders was a student activist back in the fifties uh, who helped to desegregate busing in Monk's Corner. Wow. And so, like, you know, when we think about Briggs v. Elliott, right, uh, we often think about that as this first moment where African-Americans challenge uh, kind of public education and they start with this kind of idea. We need a bus. Right. Uh, and so we often think of that as this first moment where a community kind of rallies to create change. Well, you know, a couple of years earlier in Monk's Corner, this guy kind of leads that charge. And so, you know, I saw his name mentioned in some documents that I had uncovered uh while studying something else. And here he is right here in this church, right? His family members are still there, you know, and, 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 you know, I've been able to kind of tiptoe around the edges on that uh, and kind of get to know that story a little bit. Um, And so, you know, doing the work on the ground just helps you fill in gaps uh, that, you know, you may not be able to uh, with kind of secondary sources. So I'd encourage your students, get out there, meet people. You never know who you'll run into around here. Um, (laughs) And you never know what they've been a part of before they became a church elder or, you know, uh, the guy who happens to run into you at the grocery store. You don't know. Um, And so, you know, 
developing that curiosity about other people and, and being open to asking questions um, has helped me a lot. Um, and, and I think, you know, has, has made some of what I've been able to write um, a little bit more useful. Oh, excellent. And so for people who, who are like just really impressed by that, you know, you've, you've told so many interesting stories, you've done a great job of selling uh, public history. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about advice you'd give for people who, who want to go into public history, who want to do something similar to what you're doing or what you've done? We'll get to the academic shortly. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the thing I would say about public history, though, that, that I think is really important is that it democratizes what we do, right? Um, you don't have to, you don't even have to have a degree to do this work, right? I mean, this is really something that, um, you know, it helps to have that kind of specialized training. Um, but I, some of the best public historians that I've, I've met in my time here in South Carolina don't have a degree. Mm -hmm. um, they, they basically kind of do the work uh, from a place of love and they, and they go out and they interview folks and they, they you know, work with state agencies like uh, archives and history to erect markers and, and to kind of have sites listed on the National Register. And they, they enlist scholars where they can to help them with you know, things that are a bit too complex. But you know, public history is one of these kind of interesting fields that I think just opens up uh, space for new voices. Um, and, and for communities that have been ignored to share who they are. Uh, and, and so, you know, if your students don't happen to pursue a degree in public history, that shouldn't stop them from doing this work. Um, you know, they should be, uh, it actually maybe enables them to be more creative than someone who's been <laughs> academically trained, right? Um, but, you know, what was the other part of your question? Oh, so if someone wants to to get a position like sure. yours, like what what kind of I, advice would you give them? I mean, state positions like what I held are are tough to come by, right. um, and and that's why I encourage folks who are thinking about public history to figure out ways that they might be able to to kind of work outside of our institutions because you know you can always start a podcast like you have, right? Oh. <laughs> um, you can always uh, develop a a kind of series of vignettes on YouTube. You can. You can uh, create your own uh, public history sites on the web uh, using a variety of different software that's available to us. Um, as long as you're doing quality primary and secondary source research and oral histories, you know you can you can create something that um, kind of changes the conversation and, and gets people to think about the past in different ways. Um, so I, I would encourage students to start thinking about what's possible, you know, outside of these institutions. Um, I mean, you know, I, I've seen people monetize this in, in some really unique ways too. Um, so, you know, that would be my advice because I can't guarantee that the state is going to have funding for positions right. like I held, right? Like someone did fill my shoes. There is someone there now who held, holds the same position that I, I held. Um, but whether that's going to expand into other opportunities more broadly, I can't say for certain. Right. Um, you know, but having a degree in public history, I think, will take you a long way um, because even at kind of, uh, you know, museums and, and, and kind of other public history institutions, they're looking for folks who are academically trained um, and, and, and who can kind of back up that training with a degree. 
you know, because if they can't find them, then, you know, a lot of the traditional track students who don't necessarily get the tenure track jobs find their way into public history. Um, so I think there is an advantage in having a public history degree, um, as, you know, especially in the job market as it exists right now. Right. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, one thing I, I tell the students about is I, I talk about, you know, there's academic historians, there's public historians. We, we do complementary work. Um, and I kind of give an example. I'm like, uh, and I said, you know, it doesn't mean you can't have a foot in both camps. Like I do living history and other public history things, but that's all on a volunteer basis. But you, you, you know, you have the rare uh, honor of being able to say you've, you've had a foot in both worlds. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us what, what, um, a little bit about your move, your shift from from doing uh, public history to to academic history. Well, I wouldn't even say it's a shift because I'm <laughs> I, I'm I'm never going to stop being a public historian. Right. I mean, no matter how many classes I teach, you know, my heart is always going to be in that realm, right? Uh, kind of doing work with communities wherever I happen to be, uh, and and you know, a lot of the institutions I've worked in in the past, I'm still kind of connected to mm-hmm. uh, in some way. Uh, but you know this transition was kind of necessary. It was it was necessary uh, for a number of reasons, um, and you know the the Newberry opportunity. You know when I when I kind of looked at the ad and started kind of speaking to folks about it. You know one of the things that struck me was just the diversity of the institution. Um, you know it's uh, you're talking about an institution where you know I, I believe. 35 to 40 percent of our students are African-American. That's more than some HBCUs in the state. Um, We've got a a tremendously diverse student population in terms of foreign students, um, folks who are um, kind of from a variety of uh, experiences in terms of their their education. Um, I mean, it was kind of perfect. Like I I was looking for a kind of small liberal arts institution um, to be a part of. And so when I saw this uh, advertisement. I mean, I just thought it was a really great opportunity. Uh, and the other thing that, you know, drew me to this position was, you know, in all of the work that I had done as a graduate student in public history, I had rarely seen Newberry as a part of that work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of these places that I'd heard about and I had kind of, you know, driven through or passed, but never actually kind of stopped and, and kind of got a sense of what was there. And, and and once I paid a visit to the campus and and kind of started researching the place, I realized like there's an opportunity here um, to kind of continue the work that I've been a part of over the years and and to, you know, attract students uh, to public history and, and kind of what we and what we do. Um, so it was it was the right opportunity at the right time. Um, and and yes, there was a raise too. So <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, I, I'm a family man now, I, I, you know, so I, I've got to make sure uh, that that things are are good on that front, too. So, you know, I, I thought it was a perfect opportunity. And the uh, so far, you know, my colleagues and, and the administration have, have supported uh, some of the ideas that I've, I've kind of put forth. And, you know, hopefully myself and, and Dr. Power and some others in our department will be able to uh, really kind of start. Uh, making some noise up there, uh, you know, connecting our institution with some of these really fantastic projects that are happening across the state and and also nationally. So uh, there are some things happening. Uh, you'll you'll be hearing from Newberry real soon. <laughs> oh, excellent! Oh, that's 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 great to hear. And of course, if there's yeah. anything we, we, us down in Lander can do, please please keep us updated. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and you know, as you as you know, um, 
I was fortunate to work with one of your students, uh, Ashley Hampton, who was uh, really sharp. Uh, and and so I think, you know, for institutions our size, having faculty connect and be able to kind of, you know, provide opportunities for our students, um, you know, I think that's 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 really important. Uh, and so, you know, if you ever see anything pop up at Lander that you think a Newberry student might be interested in, trust me, I'm making a list. Oh, okay. uh, and, and so oh, definitely. You know, and the same goes over here. Um, and so I think we've we've all really got to help one another. Um, you know, move forward. And, and, you know, so to be able to make these connections is important. So I'm, I'm glad that you asked me to join you today. Oh, well, thank you so much. I think that our students are going to really enjoy the uh, hearing you speak. You said a lot of very interesting things. <laughs> I feel uh, like I'm talking too much, but, you know. Well, they I, can hear me talk anytime. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's I, better. I, it's better. You should talk. I don't want to leave anything out, but, I, you know, I also don't want to say too much. <laughs> oh, no, no. So, to kind of wrap things up, is do you have any final thoughts or any advice you'd give our students who are interested in pursuing public history, academic history, history in general, um, anything? Well, I, I think the thing that I would always advise students to do is to find what interests them, because that's going to keep them in the game uh, longer, right? Uh, whether that be a, a class project or, or a paper or, you know, whatever career aspirations you may have, like follow what you're interested in doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily have to be your passion, but you you have to have a reason to be involved in whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and so, you know, I always kind of encourage my students uh, when they're doing our unessay projects or our, our kind of standard research papers. You know, choose a topic that interests you, something that's going to sustain you over the course of the semester. And and it's worked out so far. Um, and the other thing I'd encourage students to think about is, you know, what's not being said, right? Um, being a historian requires bravery. Like, it's easy to <laughs> kind of follow the consensus and write what's been written before. Like, right. Yeah, okay. Uh, but, you know, what is in the historical record that you found uh, that you can kind of pull on that thread and maybe kind of ask a question in a different way? Or, or you know, as I said, you know, being curious enough to ask folks in your community about the history of where you are, you'd be surprised. There's there's something there that has not been written about. Um, and, and if you ask enough folks, you may find that topic that takes you where you want to go. Um, you know, I, I can say uh, I've had several experiences like that, and, and I'm working on something right now that is, is kind of along these lines. Uh, it's It's you know, been referenced once or twice in the, in the narrative, but nobody's dug into this topic that I'm I'm looking at right now, and so I'm 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 excited about where where this one may may go. Um, but it, it came about from a chance meeting at a Chick Fil A. <laughs> uh, so you know, talk to people. Don't be shy. Um, you'll be surprised what you learn, and you'll be surprised uh, what experiences other people have, because um, you know that's essentially what matters most. Uh, you know. Uh, history is about us, uh, whether it's individual or co collective. And, and you know, if if we're leaving out uh, marginalized voices, the voices of the working class, the voices of folks who get overlooked in these narratives, then our history is not complete and it's, it's not worth sharing. Um, so leave the synthesis for your later days when you are you know about to put your feet up and, and, and collect those retirement checks. Leave that. <laughs> down the road. Go find something new. Um, say something that hasn't been said. Be courageous. Um, 
you know, because if there's one thing I'll say is that, you know, my road has been winding and it's been weird and there have been holes in, in the road and, you know, all of that. But, you know, to have made it this far, I mean, at least I can say I did it. You know, I, I kept my integrity and I, and, and I tried to be as courageous as I could be. And, you know, it, it worked out. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. That That is a very inspiring way to end our podcast. I hope so. Today. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I just think we got to be a bit more kind to ourselves. Right. Um, you know, because when you're kind of in the weeds in these master's programs, these PhD programs, oh, yeah. you know, you, you don't know where the light is sometimes. And uh, when you see it, you think it's a train, but it's, it's okay. Breathe. <laughs> it's right. all right. Um, you know, and so if, if anything, I would encourage students, just, just be kind to yourself, be curious, uh, and, and it'll work out. It's okay. You'll find your way. Right, right. Yeah. It's easy to be our own worst enemies and, and to, to get ourselves down and to give up. Yeah. Um, we're always, nothing's going to go perfect the first time. No. <laughs> just, just got to put your head down, keep going. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. No, thank you. I, I enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully if we uh, start our own podcast at Newberry, uh, we'll have you on as a guest. Yeah. Oh, that would be wonderful. I don't know if I what I would say. It would be worthwhile, but I'll be happy to show up. Well, first of all, we're going to talk about podcasts. Oh, excellent. <laughs> that, that sounds good. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you.